In our last lecture, we looked at the internationalization of Chinese social organizations and its potential practical and theoretical effects. In this lecture, we turn our attention to China's foreign relations. There are contradictory and competing claims regarding the determinants of strategic foreign relations between China and other national actors. This is aptly seen when examining the Chinese and European Union relationship. For instance, some scholars contend that China-EU's engagement can be explained through institutional theory. Thus, social norms at the European level are produced and diffused by the institutions. And the structural makeup of the EU's decision-making bodies, for example, the Council and Commission Committees, determines the foreign policy practice for China. Other scholars argue that the EU subscribes to a normative engagement with nations such as China, which stems from the EU's culturally ingrained self-perception of bringing norms to the world. We can also accentuate a real politic dimension between Chinese and EU relationship. Here, both the EU and China are argued to pursue good political relations with each other in order to obtain commercial advantages for their national companies. Consequently, the strategic orientation between both actors is driven by agency stakeholder variables, which emphasize and rest on this sort of idea of mercantilism, or mercantilistic strategies are designed to bolster national power and resource deficiencies. In an environment of multitude and potentially competing claims on the strategic preference formation of actors towards China and vice versa, China's foreign relations preferences and behavior towards other national actors, we can suggest there are three behavioral theories that can better account for this reality. In this lecture, we will look at the institutional, social, and agency stakeholder theories. Understanding the primary motivation of China can diminish much of the miscommunication, uncertainty, misunderstanding, and mistrust that often characterizes present-day national actors' interactions with the country. To understand China's foreign relations, we first can use institutional theory to understand how the domestic uh, sort of institutional environment can affect its ability and its, its sort of behavior as, it, as China goes overseas. From the outset, institutionalism argues that structural arrangements, including resource configurations, determine political orientations. In other words, the preferences of the Chinese state are shaped by its institutional structures that create a series of rituals and regulations to abide by. Indeed, so strong is the indoctrination effect that these procedures become a purpose in their own right. In other words, what institutional theory is suggesting is as China goes overseas and try to understand China's behavior as it is overseas, it is shaped by these rituals and regulations. There are a number of problems that are apparent with this approach. In particular, it presents a deterministic account of change that assumes a path-dependent preference formation once institutional outcomes are in place. In addition, the theory adopts a uniform view of institutional arrangements that cannot account for variations at the subnational or regional level. As we've discussed in previous lectures, China can be seen as multiple Chinas where there's various kinds of regional variations. 
there is a significant plurality of institutional environments in China, and this can create competing rituals that favor no single guiding preference. Finally, institutional theory underestimates stakeholders' impact on political outcomes and foreign policy outcomes, and an emphasis of national drivers at the expense of global ones. The second theory we can use to understand China's foreign relations and foreign policy formulation are social theories. Social theories broadly argue that sociocultural factors motivate political actors, and they motivate them both in the domestic and international realm. Here institutions are perceived in terms of cultural legacies and historical heritage that typify state behavior. As a result, Rather than acting as independent variables, institutions are shown to be deeply embedded in a cultural nexus that is undergoing constant negotiation and renegotiation. Hence, their primary function is cognitive rather than normative, and their life cycles are transient. Social theories, however, often exaggerate the role of culture, and especially the role of culture when it comes to determining domestic and international behavior. It is presenting it as though culture is this sort of universal variable that it can account for the totality of China's actions. This significantly diminishes the tangible impact that collective rationality and resource constraint can exert on political preference formation. Certain social theories, such as world polity theory, attempt to ameliorate some of these issues by drawing on much broader organizational environment. In particular, the influence of international variables, such as globalization, receives greater attention. Nevertheless, this does not address the overtly normative view of behavior. For example, some Chinese actors can be described as being more rational than norms-based. Moreover, it's often a difficult task to accurately draw out the impact of culture on personal preferences, without steeping into wide sort of generalizations or oversimplifications or uncomfortably bold claims. Finally, the third sort of theory we can use to understand China's foreign policy preferences is the agency stakeholder theory. This approach suggests that individuals are primary determinants of their own behavioral patterns, or states are primarily their determinants of their own behavioral patterns. Here, considerations of rationality, efficiency, and self-interest form the bedrock of decision-making by China's institutions. From this perspective, the impact of institutional and social forces are significantly downplayed due to the notion that actors actively shape rather than reflect their characteristics. Consequently, it becomes imperative to understand China's foreign relations behavior by analyzing the personalities of Chinese leaders to determine their political preferences as a whole. The stakeholder approach extends this analysis to relevant groups of social actors. Thus, it argues that the state, interest groups, companies, etc., independently create their preference orientations. The agency-stakeholder approach, however, once again presents a series of pressing problems. In particular, their overriding assumption rests on a controversial conception of the self, whose identities a priori are independent to all ends, and whose choices are determined by contingent, detachable preferences. This fixed atomic self then becomes akin to the isolated Crusoe, 
who acts egotistically and rationally, unresponsive to social markers. Moreover, the agency stakeholder approach disempowers individual autonomy as the self exists as an a priori, and so it's not subject to choice. It is apparent then that the three theoretical orientations used to explain China's foreign relations are somewhat fragmented. There's insufficient attention given to arguments across the various approaches. As a result, emphasis is cast on different variables that are often set out in competition with one another. For instance, institutional theories underscore structure, while social and agency stakeholder theories stress culture and individual autonomy respectively. The limitations of each theory's isolated scope therefore impacts its success at accurately accounting for China's foreign relations preference formation. In fact, this has ensured that the study of foreign policy decision-making when it comes to China's relations with other nations has remained compartmentalized and particularistic, unable to attain unity. From this perspective, it is a necessary analytical exercise to merge complementary elements of the theory's causal arguments into a framework that can transcend their restrictions and ameliorate their individual weaknesses. One of the most dynamic elements called in all three theories to explain China's foreign relations is an acknowledgement of the dynamic cultural norms and their interaction with the surrounding environmental context. To this end, attention is directed at China's governance systems, which embeds institutions, cultural norms, strategic actors, and stakeholders. This stems from the notion that, at their core, systems of governance reflect specific configurations of power relations and contested interest alignments that support dominant cultural, institutional, and stakeholder arrangements. For this reason, the three theories should not be viewed in insular terms, but rather as deeply enmeshed complementary variables that structure and are structured by ex-ante power dynamics within particularized governance systems. Consequently, the aforementioned formulation possesses three important characteristics. First, culture serves as the most prominent underpinning element that predisposes institutional outcomes and actor preferences. In particular, Chinese institutions are seen as an embodiment of cultural systems of meaning. Further, stakeholder roles are depicted as highly situational and dependent on socially constructed variables. As a result, those stakeholders, such as governments or interest groups or social movements, retain some agency to impact domestic strategic preferences the dominant cultural institutional context can determine their efficacy through decision-making phases in terms of dictating stakeholder authority and significance. Second, as dominant cultural norms are an expression of power relations, the nature of local resource configurations can propel certain cultural norms into the forefront while leaving others outside mainstream pockets of power. Thus, the primary role of structural constraints is not so much to form cultural preferences, but rather to help determine which ones gain the most hold in governance systems. Third and finally, China's governance systems and strategic preferences are seen as transient and malleable, 
due to the notion that their primary underpinning variable, cultural norms, experience construction and renegotiation through ongoing interest-based contestation at the domestic level. From our conceptual framework, a series of statements regarding the case study of China and the EU's strategic behavior towards each other can be drawn. First, a fundamental cultural basis of strategic orientation formation suggests that the EU's actions towards China are inclined to be norms-based and guided by its historical heritage and cultural legacies. Second, the notion that governance systems are fluid and cultural norms are contested suggests that the EU does not have perpetually fixed cultural legacies that influence its behavior towards China. Instead, it is comprised of semi-integrated, contending narratives that strive for social preeminence and are tied closely to changing dynamics of power. Hence, this inherent instability predisposes EU's norms-based behavior to change or realign when it comes to priorities that are expunged when it engages with China. This also leads to some credence to the notion that the degree of national interest at stake can, in theory, impact culture's normative influence on EU's behavior towards China, potentially due to the fact that culture is not necessarily unitary or stable. Therefore, it experiences greater fragmentation in certain contexts, and this is quite evident in the EU's engagement with China. Third, more institutional or agency-based strategic behavior, such as mercantilism, realpolitik, and rationalism, may be shown by the EU when it experiences particularly strong structural or organizational constraints. This is possible as structural contingencies, limitations, can impact distributions of power, and so at times it overrules dominant cultural norms. Understanding the dynamic cultural norms and to a varying degree, the relevant structural resource constraints is paramount to discern the underpinnings behind the EU's engagement with China. Thus, there are two interrelated conceptual groups that emerge, ideational processes and strategic implementation. Ideational processes in this case study refers to the cognitive type norms that characterizes the EU's self-interest. From an examination of pertinent policy documents and EU decision makers' speeches, two overall ideational processes are apparent. That is justice and democracy. Strategic implementation refers to policy type norms that characterizes how the EU achieves its self-interest on the international stage. Here, the most overarching policy type norm is the EU's active and open promotion of its values, which are seen as desirable common good. Another dominant policy type norm rests on the EU's primary non-coercive pursuit of its interests. Finally, a third dominant policy type concerns the occasional crudeness or perhaps close-mindedness in which the EU can implement its agenda towards China. The aforementioned impact of culture predisposes the EU towards certain actions, and these actions are tempered by resource deficiencies that can contribute to the readjustment of, quote, the EU's natural strategic preferences towards China. There are a series of context-specific characteristics of the EU's engagement with China. Here, three points are of particular interest. First, there's a fundamental divergence in regime types. 
To this end, China possesses a predominantly corporatist authoritarian regime dominated by the Communist Party of China. However, it's not entirely politically closed, as the presence of open elections at the grassroots level, mostly the village level, makes China often receive the designation of hegemonic electoral authoritarian. The EU, in comparison, is a liberal democracy with multi-party systems and full electoral competition at the member state level. Second, when we look at China and EU's relations, there's a variance in norms. For example, China's norms rest on an overriding commitment to non-interference and state sovereignty. In addition, China subscribes to a notion of common good, not tied to a universal maxim or necessarily an international jus cogent. The EU places prime normative value to individual rights and freedoms and associates the common good with notions of democracy and justice that it projects as a model for all nations. Third, there's a growing imbalance in economic power between the EU and China. In particular, China's GDP as PPP is already above the EU's, with the gap predicted to substantially increase over the coming years. Similarly, China has become the EU's principal investor. Norms stemming from the EU's cultural legacies and historical heritage exert a significant impact on the EU's strategic behavior towards China. Norms' prominence have been underscored by the notion that they underpin even non-normative issues due to the EU's dissatisfaction with China, which is based on perceived or perhaps real incompatible values. Put differently, contemporary EU-China relations can be seen as both fruitful and a rivalrous partnership. An example of the former is after seven years of negotiations, the EU and China concluded a comprehensive agreement on investment in December 2020. The agreement sets forth a commitment for a greater level of market access to China for EU investors. The agreement as conceived will create a better balance in the EU-China trade relationship and comes at the cusp of China officially becoming the EU's largest trade partner. The rivalrous nature of EU-China relations is evident when looking at cyber technology diplomacy. The European Commission in January 2020 recommended that member states avoid dependency on 5G suppliers who are considered to be a major risk for national security. In response, the Shenzhen-based Huawei, the world's largest telecommunications equipment provider, was subsequently restricted from providing 5G digital infrastructure to most EU member states under the guise that key information can be potentially accessed by Chinese state authorities. The fissures borne by the EU's institutional legacies, self-perceived values-based role, and real politic considerations suggest that there is bound to be a Gestaltian approach towards China. This, of course, has the intended effect of fostering future fractures in the EU's overall engagement with China, and in fact, it creates opportunities for China to exploit. This concludes our lecture on foreign relations, and it also marks the end of our lecture series to the introduction of Chinese politics. Over the series of lectures, we have looked at contextualizing contemporary China, looking at the path to modernization and the onset of reforms. 
We also looked at the behavior of contemporary Chinese institutions, looking at their bureaucratic operations and configurations, and looking at government-private enterprise and government-NGO relationships. We also looked at the behavior of political actors in China, looking at topics such as popular legitimacy and accountability, ideological development and performance, as well as the behavior of marginalized groups. Finally, we looked at the challenges and future prospects of China in the 2020s. This involved looking at civil society and evolving modes of citizen participation. It also involved looking at the internationalization of Chinese social organizations, and as with this lecture, looking at China's foreign relations with others.